Hi, I'm Jules van Binsberg and a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Jonathan Burke, a finance professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. All right, welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about another exciting topic, which is the importance of job security. Let me start with a conversation I had last night with a friend of mine who's an executive at a very, very large company. And he was complaining about a poorly performing worker in another group. The tone of the conversation was that these large companies are very bureaucratic and inefficient. And that's why they tolerate underperforming workers and choose never to fire them. But that seems like a weird explanation. Why don't the companies just fire the workers and make themselves, the management, as well as the shareholders better off? Why would they leave that opportunity to make everybody better off on the table? That doesn't make much sense to me. Yeah, and I think most people think the companies are just uh, not very well run and making stupid decisions. But today, Jules, we're going to argue that that really isn't the case. And that the explanation that these large companies are inefficient and bureaucratic is actually an all else equal mistake. Well, because as an aside, let's spend a little bit of time on this, right? If we see behavior that we don't understand very well as economists, we always have the card we can pull that says people are just being stupid or irrational. We can always apply that if we have no better explanation than that. But it does seem worth it to at least try to understand from a rational equilibrium point of view where this behavior comes from. Is it possible that we can understand it in another way that makes more sense? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you are faced with the possibility of something that looks puzzling, you could always say, oh, people are just making mistakes. That explanation is always an explanation. Unfortunately, explanations that are always an explanation don't tell you very much. And on top of that, you know, this guy was working for a very large company that's enormously successful. And so... In this competitive environment that we live in, it's hard for me to believe that a company can continuously make stupid decisions and still be as successful as that company is. So it seems unlikely that the explanation is that managers are being stupid. And to, to add some more data to the puzzle, let's just look at some facts, right? So the first one is, as we already established, most companies have some underperforming workers. But more interestingly, perhaps, larger companies seem to have proportionately more of that. Yes, Jules, and let's even define what we mean by underperforming worker. What we mean is that the company has a worker that they could go to the labor market and hire a new worker, an average new worker, and the new worker on average would be more productive than the worker that's currently working at the company. So it would be in the interest of the company to fire the current worker and hire a new one. And so that's how we're going to define an underperforming worker. So now let's go off a bit on a tangent because it may seem like we're going off on a tangent, but in the end, this is going to be the key explanation for what we're seeing. Let's think a little bit about insurance, right? And the easiest way to think about insurance, let's first start with a simple example like fire insurance. So how does fire insurance work? You as a homeowner go to insurance company and you say, I'll pay you a premium every year. And then the insurance company says, fine, in case your house burns down, we will reimburse you for the damage. But if nothing happens to the house, then the insurance company gets to keep the insurance premium. Now, suppose that I have only one house with one insurer. And so I have one homeowner, one insurer, and one house. 
then really not much is happening other than that the risk of the house burning down is transferred from the homeowner to this insurance company. But that, of course, is not the key of insurance. The key of insurance is that you have millions of houses, millions of homeowners, and therefore the insurance company is going to have a pool of houses so that a certain fraction of houses will be hit by this fire. And as long as the fire department does its job, meaning that if one house is on fire, it will put it out so it doesn't spread to many houses around it, this insurance model is going to work quite well. Yeah, so in summary, when the insurance company insures a lot of houses, they themselves bear no risk because they can predict very accurately how many houses will burn down. They can't predict which house will burn down, but on average, they know a certain fraction will burn down. So they charge a premium such that the losses they sustain on that fraction is made up by the premiums they charge everybody. And they add a little bit to the premium and they make a profit. And that profit is relatively riskless. And they make that every year. It's almost a miracle. The insurance company has removed the risk from the economy. Nobody bears the risk of the fire insurance. The next step we need to make is, what does this have to do with workers? We started off with job security, but already the word security suggests a link, right? So what is the biggest risk that workers have? Well, as we just described, some workers are outperforming workers, some of them are underperforming workers. And the big risk that you have as an individual is that when you start your job, you don't quite know yet which type of worker you are. How well are you going to be able to do the job? And so I remember very well when I went on the job market, you know, you have a lot of uncertainty about how well and whether you will be able to compete in the market. Yes, Jules, you know, when you are 60 years old and you've got a successful career, it's very easy to forget the unpleasantness and how scared you were when you entered the job market. And I remember graduating from college and really worrying, will I be able to put bread on the table? Will I be able to raise a family? And certainly from my perspective at the time, that was the biggest risk I faced. So then if, if indeed companies are the ones that are insuring workers against this big risk that they face, that they don't know how good they are, how does that work, that insurance policy? Well, let's just take a very simple example and suppose that people work for the same company for their entire life. And then the company can say when they hire them, neither the worker nor the company knows yet how competent this worker is. And so the company says, here is a fixed wage that is equal to the average productivity of all the workers. And everybody works at the company for the same fixed wage. The whole risk of the employee's quality has now been offloaded to the company. Just like the fire insurance company took on the risk of the fire of the houses. And then because we average it out over a lot of houses, that became a certainty. The company can simply hire the workers at a fixed wage. Yes. And that's would be uh, an insurance contract. And what the question we can first ask is why don't we see that insurance contract? And I think we see something similar, but not exactly that contract. And let's go through some of the reasons why. Well, the first reason is you have to be a large company because this doesn't work if you're a very small company and you only have a very few workers. There's not a lot of diversification across workers. And in that situation, all that's happening is the risk is being transferred from the worker to the company and there's not a lot of efficiency gain. On the other hand, if it's a large company, we get a lot of diversification. So that contract would work better for large companies than small companies. 
The other issue, of course, is some workers are more important than others. Even in a large company, the CEO is an important decision maker. And if the CEO makes a mistake, he can take the whole company down. So it's not possible to diversify the CEO's risk. So in that case, if the company is publicly traded, then shareholders can diversify the risk by just investing in a lot of companies. In that case, they have lots of CEOs. Some of them make good decisions and some of them make bad decisions. And I can see another issue with the very simple example we just discussed, Jonathan, and that is, you know, you cannot keep workers in the same job forever, right? I mean, as workers find out over time that they're the good workers, they're no longer going to be satisfied with this low fixed wage that they're receiving. They want to get a better deal somewhere else because their productivity is higher than the average and another company will hire them away at a higher wage. So if you want to retain that worker, you're going to have to give them a pay increase. And so the simple contract where you have a fixed wage forever isn't going to work. So what is the next best contract? The next best contract is to say to a worker, look, we're going to hire you for a wage. The wage is never going to go down. But if you perform well, we'll raise your salary to make sure we can keep you or you can go get another job. And I would say that is the contract that workers work under. Most workers never get a pay cut. Most workers are not fired. Unless you are really underperforming, you're not fired. So I would say, that is the labor contract that most workers work under. But Jonathan, if there's no downside to the workers' contract because the wages never go down, but they only go up, right? What is in it for the company? Because they're providing this insurance now in this example, so that must show up somewhere. Yes, good point, Jules. So that's a very good question. Why would a company agree to this contract? It seems like they're in a lose-lose situation. If they hire the worker and the worker turns out to be bad, they never fire him but they have to overpay the worker. And if the worker turns out to be good, they have to raise their salary. And so they don't get any productivity gains from the worker. They don't make any money from the worker. So that's the same situation a fire insurance company faces, right? If the house burns down, they have to pay out. And that's equivalent to the case where the worker underperforms. So what does a fire insurance company do to make money? They charge a premium. And so what's the equivalent of the premium in this case? The initial wage is lowered to take into account the fact that good workers will get a pay increase and bad workers will always stay. And so the workers are perfectly fine with this lower average wage because they understand that they also get the insurance, meaning that they stay in the job for longer, even if they end up being the lower productivity type. So, okay, let's think about some of the implications of this contract. Initially, when I had this discussion with my friend and we were talking about the underperforming worker, the question was, why doesn't the company just fire the worker? And the answer is, all else equal, the company should fire the worker. But if the company fires the worker, then they would have violated the implicit insurance contract that they wrote with the worker. And other workers would notice that. And in realizing that, they would not believe that they had an insurance contract and they would be unwilling to take that lower wage initially. So in order for the company to write the contract, it's important that the company maintains a reputation so that 
it's clear that if things turn out badly, the worker will have insurance. And so firing underperforming workers destroys that reputation. So, so what you're saying is you could think, why can't the company just one time fire all of the underperforming workers, keep all the good workers, and just promise insurance to the good workers, and then you'd have the best of both worlds. But as you pointed out, you can't do that because there's a reputation to uphold. Because how are people going to believe with your next hiring decision is that you are going to keep the insurance contract that you have with them, the job security claim that you have with them, if you've fired people in the past before? So every firing decision that a company makes is tied to this reputation. And remember, it's efficient that the company has these underperforming workers. Why? Because in a large company, especially a publicly traded company, just like the fire insurance example, the employee risk has been removed. The company does not face the risk of its employees because it's got lots and lots of employees. And on average, the company will know, can predict very accurately how many good employees it'll eventually have and how many bad employees it'll eventually have. So the, the, the transference of the risk from the employee to the company is efficient. The employee doesn't have to bear the risk and the company also doesn't have to bear the risk. So it's efficient for companies to have underperforming workers. They are symptomatic of the employment contract. Indeed. Although... Let's talk a little bit about, in reality, there are going to be scenarios where the contract is violated, right? I mean, we can think of at least two reasons for where that contract could be violated. Let's first talk about bankruptcy. So when the company goes bankrupt, lots of contracts are torn up, including the labor market contract. Yes. And so that is an important point because companies that have a higher probability of going bankrupt will have a harder time convincing workers that the insurance contract will be upheld. In other words, once the company goes into bankruptcy, what the company does is it starts firing workers. And obviously, you're going to start with the least productive workers. So what that means is companies that have a higher chance of going bankrupt will have to pay higher wages because the wage contract does not have as much insurance in them. So, so that then also means, Jonathan, that we should see a link between how much debt corporations have and what the wages are that the companies have, right? Because a company that has no debt whatsoever and is only held by equity holders, they have no chance of going bankrupt. So it seems to me that they can make a, a more solid claim that they're not going to break this insurance contract. Now, another one that I think is interesting to discuss here is we know that in finance, wages are pretty high on average. So do you think that the high average wages in finance also have a relationship with this insurance argument that we've just made? I do. And what's interesting about the finance industry is they really don't write this contract. In the financial services industry, especially at places like investment banks, the salaries are very much tied to productivity. So if you're very productive, you get a lot of bonuses. And if you are productive, they fire you immediately. So in that industry, we don't see the insurance contract as much. And I think that is the reason why wages are so high in that industry. Because in that industry, employees are forced to take on their own human capital risk. I mean, another question is why in some industries do you see employees taking on this risk? And in other industries, you see a lot of insurance. And I think that might have to do with something we haven't spoken about today, which is incentives 
obviously the more insurance you provide employees, the less incentives they have to work hard. And I think in some industries, that's more costly than in others, especially in industries where you can't directly observe how hard the employees work. And now there's a second scenario where I do think we see in the data that co the labor contracts are torn up, and that's during recessions, right? So when the economy has a downturn, it seems that firms do not seem to have much of a problem or maybe actually be forced to tear up those labor contracts, those insurance contracts. Yeah, so I would say this observation that there's a lot of insurance in labor contracts actually explains another puzzle. So you're right, in recessions, companies are able to fire workers without destroying their reputation for keeping the labor contract. And obviously in a, in a deep recession, the workers that are fired first are the less productive workers. And we also know that what's interesting about a recession is workers who lose their job in recessions, some of these workers never work again. And years and years later, long after the economy is recovered, they are still not working in the same jobs as they worked pre-recession. I think the explanation is simply this, that because they were the unproductive workers and they were fired, they lost the insurance contract. And so they were making a much higher wage of their productivity. And so once they want to re-enter the labor force, they have to re-enter the labor force at a much lower wage. And in many cases, they just decide they would rather not do that. And I think that is a large part of the explanation why some workers never work again after a big recession. Now, there are two final puzzles of empirical facts, maybe a better way to say it, that I think this insurance contract approach can really shed light on. The first one is, often you hear people say, well, firms are making money out of their workers because the workers are much more productive than on average what they're getting paid for. But I think that the insurance argument implies that that's what you would want to see because the workers would like to get the insurance and therefore they pay the insurance premium to the insurance company, but it insures them against being the lower productivity worker. And then the other empirical fact is that for a long time, economists wondered why we need to organize production inside of corporations. Why can we not just everybody is just an individual contractor? And we have this loose set of contracts between individuals that sometimes you do it one way, sometimes you do another way. What do I really need corporations for? But really the argument that we've laid out here is corporations are large insurance companies and the diversification benefits can only be attained by organizing groups of people in these larger forms. Yes, Jules. And so uh, I think what this podcast episode emphasizes is the important role of corporations as insurance company for workers. In fact, it's the opposite of what many people look at corporations as evil entities exploiting workers. I think, in fact, you could think of corporations as entities that insure workers and make everybody better off. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by Alumni FM.